Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Claire Griffin about working far from home. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you. Nice to be here. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about the eternal dislocation of academic living. But before we jump into that, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. I am British, a first-generation academic um, and neuroatypical. Um, I have my degrees in Russian studies. I'm a specialist on uh, science and medicine in the early modern Russian empire. Um, I started out in the UK and did a lot of archival research and study in Russia. Um, I then moved to Germany for a job and then Kazakhstan for a job. And I am currently sitting in a uh, fairly rainy um Bloomington, Indiana, for my brand new position here. And we're going to unpack all of that on the episode. But before we get into where you are now, can we talk a bit about when you were embarking on your own undergraduate journey? How far from home did you go? And what did you think it would be like to go to college? And what were you hoping to study? Um, Sure. So I grew up in a village outside Cambridge and spent the first 18 years of my life in the same room, in the same house, uh, on the same street, in a village of, I think at the time was maybe 4,000 people. Um, And then I moved to central London. If anyone's familiar with London, I was in halls of residence near the BT Tower. So it's like central, central London, not far from Oxford Street. Um, And I initially started just doing a degree in history, although I'd later changed to um, joint honours history and Russian. Um, And I'm not really sure what I expected. Um, I liked history. I wanted to do more history. Um, And I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't know a huge amount of people other than school teachers with a university degree. And so it just, I wasn't really sure what would happen. Um, But I think partly kind of sensory overload, like between a village and central London is a very significant difference. (laughs) It it is. If if you're not used to urban living, it's 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 a it's a completely different culture. And were you prepared for that? Sometimes we think, well, 
I'm, I'm not moving that far geographically from home, so it's not going to be that different. Were you prepared for the idea that it could be extremely different? I don't, I'm not sure if I remember if I, if I felt prepared, but like it was, I mean, one of the things was nighttime because if you're in a village, there isn't even streetlights everywhere, you know? And certainly if you're outside of the village, it is pitch black at night. Whereas central London is never, ever dark. There are streetlights everywhere. There's, uh, you know, cafe lights, there's lights from shops. It is weirdly bright all the time. And it's such a strange difference from you go out at midnight in the village and it is dark. Whereas you go out at midnight in London and it's incredibly bright. And it's a, it's a change to your nervous system as well. I'm a person who responds really well to greenery and open spaces and a night sky. And I, oddly love New York City. Um, but it's, it's, my nervous system feels different when I'm in that kind of energy. Yeah, absolutely. It does just, yeah, like you say, just a completely, completely different feeling. And so after college, you went to grad school or did you have a gap time? No, I did my undergrad degree. I went straight on to a master's and then straight on to a PhD. And did you stay in London or where did you go for those degrees? I actually stayed in the same department, in the same university, um, even did everything with the the person I did my undergrad uh, thesis with. So I was, I found somewhere I felt comfortable and just stayed there for nine years. So your childhood home you had for 18 years, your educational, higher educational home you had for nine years, and... Now you're well into figuring out what you want to be as an adult and you're getting ready to go do that. Did you think you would stay in the UK? What was your thought about, all right, I'm going to be a professor now. Where was your dream place to live? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, it was such a fast thing. So UK PhDs, um, in theory, you're supposed to do it in three years. Um, But almost all of us take four. And that is so fast. If you compare it to like an American PhD program, um, to try and get it done in four years is so, so fast. Um, And then in the final year of your PhD, you're immediately applying for, you know, every job available. And so that's, I mean, you could easily apply for 30 plus jobs a year, right? Um, And so... I think the onus was just on, I need to get a job to pay my rent. Um, So I don't know, I even had a kind of, I didn't even have a concept of what a preference would be in those circumstances, you know? You mentioned a bit earlier that you were first gen, is that right? Yes. So who was advising you on what it would mean to get an academic job? Um... I was speaking to various people, but honestly, there wasn't kind of, there wasn't that level of advice, um, because especially at that point, a lot of your, a lot of your supervisors are, have been in their jobs long enough that they're just not dealing with the same academic market. Um, and so it's, it's tricky to, to speak to someone who's, you know, 50, 
um, who was able to get into an academic place um, and compare that to the, the job market of kind of the, um, of, you know, 2009, 2015, like it's just such a different thing to do. Um, and like the university itself, I don't remember seeing any kind of workshops or anything about like how to apply for things or things like this. So there wasn't a huge amount of support in terms of, yeah, what it would be like. So how did you find your job in Germany? Um, so um, after I finished my PhD, I was actually out of academia for a year. Um, and I translated and I waitressed and I kind of cobbled together various things. I mean, I applied for kind of nine to five jobs, but with three PhDs, oh, sorry, not three PhDs, um, three degrees could not get really kind of any nine to five job immediately. So I kind of went into bits and pieces of work that I'd previously done. Um, and then I was able to get a postdoc at Cambridge actually for two years. Um, and so it was this weird, this, this kind of typical thing in current academic job market, you can go from a position of having no offers at all and then have like a shiny, shiny postdoc offer. Um, so I was actually there for two years. Um, and then, some people I knew at Cambridge had affiliation in Germany. Um, and so partly through those kind of, um, kind of gross personal contacts, they decided they wanted me to go out to Germany for a couple of years. So it was via people I already knew from the UK. And you said for a couple of years, is that how they phrased it? Like you're going to go for a couple of years or did you think you'll go and you'll put down roots? Oh, no, it was a it was always a two year contract uh, position. So I knew I knew it, certainly that position was only going to be two years. Um, I, I don't know that I ever thought that I would necessarily stay in Germany. Uh, the German academic system is very specific. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I I wasn't sure that I would necessarily stay. And especially as, you know, my German is functional, but in terms of, of um, working there full time and giving academic papers in German, um, I'm not sure I could do that. And that would then limit me to a, a handful of universities that do work in Germany, but in English. So it was a nice place to be for a couple of years, but it, I kind of always thought of it as... I mean, I'd bounced back and forth between England and Russia several times at this point anyway. So I was kind of used to the idea of, you know, you go somewhere for six months to the year and like it's a it's a fun adventure and you do some new things um, and then you go on somewhere else. It is a fun adventure to go somewhere and do some new things. And there's also a natural human longing to set up your apartment and get used to your neighborhood and feel like you really live somewhere. How did you balance those two sort of competing drives that academics have? We do want to see the world. We do want to go to all the cool archives. We also want to have that feeling of coming home. Yeah. Well, you have to kind of make like a little um, snail shell home, you know, and bring some of your home with you. Um, So things like, like posters are really good and like a handful of really special books um, and kind of like 
even if it's just a couple of things, like things which are yours um, and not like some nondescript thing you bought from Ikea um, is really helpful. Just having things that you can go, okay, this is my thing. I chose it. I, you know, in Marie Kondo's kind of way of this brings me joy and it feels, I mean, that's what makes it feel like home partly everywhere, right? Like you have the things in your house that you go, this is my thing and it makes me happy. Do you have a sense of limiting yourself? Like, because I've packed and moved so many times, I can't get too much stuff. Or do you have a feeling of, I'll get what I need for this place and I may have to give a bunch of it away soon? I mean, absolutely. Um, um, So, I mean, going from Europe to Kazakhstan and now Kazakhstan to the US, it's so expensive to ship things and it takes so long you know you're not going to keep certain things. Like, I mean, are you, you're not shipping furniture to the US unless you love it or something, right? Like, partly it was going to take a huge amount of time. And if you moved into an unfurnished place, you don't want to wait, you know, two months, six weeks, two months for your sofa and your bed to show up, right? So you have to you do have to kind of get used to the idea of, I mean, ideally renting furnished places. So I've only just now moved into my unfurnished place and I spent the whole weekend um, building flat pack furniture and my hands are sore from making furniture. But, um, but yeah, you have to, you know, you can't take everything with you. Like it's just, it's so expensive and so time consuming to do that you have to have kind of a, a capsule of things that I'm definitely taking with me and then other things you just have to let it go. How did you find the job in Kazakhstan? Um, so it is a Nazarbayev University. It's kind of an American-style English-speaking university and they do because they want to hire English speakers and build connections with uh, universities worldwide. They do advertise on major um, kind of major job sites. So they use uh, they use HNET, they use jobs.ac.uk is the major British one. I think that's where I saw it. Um, so um, yeah, you can this these kind of ones um, and also a lot of the uh, Chinese universities, Singapore, Taiwan, um, a lot of the a lot of places in Asia which are have English-speaking universities will advertise on the major English-speaking job sites. So, so far the chronology is you had 18 years in, in the village where you grew up with your family and, and lived in that same house, then nine years in central London getting all of your higher ed degrees, then you had kind of a gap year and then Cambridge for two years, then Germany for two years. Now you're in Kazakhstan. How long are you in Kazakhstan for? Um, so I'm now, so as of today, I officially work for Indiana University Bloomington. Um, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. in the narrative, we've reached, okay. we've reached sure. Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, we That's are, okay. in our history, we are now in Kazakhstan. Um, so I was in Kazakhstan for five years. And was that always going to be a temporary appointment or is that when you thought I need to 
I, I've gotten what I'm going to get here and I'm, I'm going to look for something else. So new jobs, especially kind of, so that was my first teaching and research place as opposed to like a postdoc where you can then also teach a bit if you feel like it um, and so I knew it was gonna be hugely tiring and hugely stressful um, and I also was just completely burnt out by the academic job market and so I had said to myself um, I'm gonna give it three years and actually Kazakhstan is a contract market rather than a tenure market. Um, so that was my first con contract anyway, it was three years. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I wanted to give it that amount of time to see what it was like. Um, I was then kind of ambivalent about staying really long term because on the one hand, um, you know, it was a good university um, in various ways to work for but then on the other hand um, it is a very different environment and I'm not even sure if legally I could have retired in Kazakhstan for example like um, there are various difficulties of going from um, Britain to Kazakhstan and kind of being there really long term as a foreigner so I just um, yeah, I kind of gave myself an initial timeline um, and then just wanted to see how it would pan out. So while you were in Kazakhstan, the pandemic hit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did that affect your plans to make regular trips home or stay in touch with people because you've moved to a new place there's always sort of a sense that you have to have some sort of lifelines so that you don't feel isolated in a brand new place where you don't know anybody yeah and yet the pandemic isolated everybody um yeah I mean it was pretty pretty huge in terms of actually going places uh so I think it was a Thursday afternoon and I was in class with my history of science students and one of them said and so we, we kind of knew that we might be shutting down at some point and we were already kind of, we the next week we were going to trial doing the class online and kind of see how that worked out. Um, but that particular Thursday, one of the students said to me, oh, I saw something on the news that like maybe, maybe the university is going to close now for a while for the pandemic. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to open my email and had something in my email right then, which said, okay, we're, we're, the government is closing down universities for three weeks. Um, and then we went from a position of like mid, mid semester and like the, the campus is full of students and you see your colleagues every day. Um, and then the students were sent home. Um, and then we were kicked out of our offices. Um, and then fairly soon after that, Kazakhstan almost entirely closed its international borders. Um, and then there was a very hard Asian-style lockdown where you were only supposed to leave the flat for absolutely, absolutely essential things, uh, like going to a pharmacy, going to the supermarket. And so the world just contracted radically over the space of a few weeks. And really, you were then in your flat um, almost 24 hours a day for I don't even remember exactly how long it was. And so in terms of in terms of seeing local people face to face, that was initially almost entirely gone. Um, and in terms of going somewhere like it was 
at one point it would have been impossible to fly out and go back to the UK. Um, so there was this incredible contraction of in-person things and travel of any kind. And you had been there uh, about two years um, at this point? I'm trying to remember. I think maybe I would have been there three years at this point. Um, and then it So just been... enough to really feel, yeah, settled into the routine and then have it... Yeah, exactly. Completely changed. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it was it was a very strange change because, you know, you're used to, you go into the office in the morning and you wave hi to people in faculty housing and, you know, you chat to people at the on-campus coffee shop and wave to some and say hi in morning to some colleagues in the corridor. And then you get to class and kind of you just chat to the students whilst you wait for everyone to set up and kind of um, and and there was such a kind of a, a level of human contact and a level of these kind of low low level conversations and the ability to go somewhere and be like hi how are you yeah whatever without it having to be kind of a significant meaningful um, interaction and then yeah you just you lose small talk and you kind of miss small talk you miss the ability to connect with an uh, um, a human being without there being some kind of huge intention and plan behind it. And you lose those small ways of being known, like the coffee shop by now knows how you take your coffee. Yeah. And the, the person on the corner shop knows the favorite candy bar that you come by to get. And yeah. You can swap out the detail for something else, but most people can relate that they have their sort of usual place where they go and their usual time of week and a person knows them and says, oh, yeah, I thought you were due to come in. And you lose that sort of marker of being seen and known. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of... the way we are connected into this web of people and it's you know some of it is our very best friends but some of it is your neighbor and like you say your coffee shop person and your manicurist and and just this feeling of being alive and being in the world through having all of these different levels of connections with other people and the casual um ways we can have a more meaningful conversation get lost as well. You were talking about having lower level conversations, but there's also sort of a organic way that more important conversations can spring up that you didn't know you needed to have, but you see someone in the hallway and you think, oh, wow, I'm going to grab this minute to ask them about something. And it becomes a deeper conversation that you're glad that you have. And with the pandemic, you have to like set up an appointment and everybody kind of wants to know, well, what are we going to talk about? And so deep conversations are scheduled. Yeah, It's, it's harder to have both low-level conversations and meaningful conversations that can happen on a natural timeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So while all of this is happening, um, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, how is how are you communicating with, with loved ones back home? And how um, are those relationships supporting you? Or, or is that part of the gap that's happening as well? So 
well, Kazakhstan is in a very different time zone, or in fact, Kazakhstan has two time zones. I was in East, Eastern Kazakhstan time. Um, and I mean, I know a couple of people in South Asia who was who I think would be in the same time zone as us. But other than that, like I know a handful of people in East Asia who were only, you know, one or two time zones away. But I think the time difference to England was about six hours. The time difference to the East Coast, where I know various people, was usually about 10 hours. Um, I have a close friend in Vancouver. And I think at one point the time difference to there was like 13 hours somehow. Um, And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're scheduling time for conversations it's really hard to schedule time for conversations um, when you're that far away from people and you end up talking to people at really bizarre times of day um, and then you spend all day long in your daylight hours pretty much and there's no one around from back home because, you know, it's 4am for them. So it really highlighted homesickness? Um, I mean, not necessarily homesickness, but like missing certain people and missing the connections. Uh, because if, I mean, you spend, you spend your whole morning and no one in America um, or Canada, no one in Europe that you know, which is kind of most people I know are, are in those two places, none of them are up. And so, you know, if you want to, if you're having a bad morning and you want to text your friend about it and talk about it, okay, you can text them, but it's going to be four hours until they get back to you, you know? So while this is going on, are you job hunting for the job that you now have in Indiana? I'm not sure if that, I'm not sure if the first year of the, oh no, I guess the first year of the pandemic, I would have been job hunting. So um, yeah, like I think actually through the pandemic, I was job hunting, um, but kind of in a a more low key level than I previously had done. Because when I was on contracts, um, and when I was kind of outside of academia, I applied for, I mean, substantial double digits of jobs every year and everything from kind of one year positions to permanent positions and just kind of had to grind out as many emails as possible, as many applications as possible to try and get something. Whereas if you're on a renewing contract, it at least gives you some kind of buffer. Even if you don't want to stay where you are, even if you're not happy there, you know, you can pay your rent next month. And that is kind of a a very significant thing. So I was probably at that point applying for five, maybe maximum 10 jobs a year and just applying for things that were kind of medium to longer term and would be somewhere that I'd be happy being for a longer period and just kind of um, rather than desperately applying for everything kind of um picking certain things which I looked at and went oh I would quite like this for people who um aren't dreaming of being an academic or who have someone in their life who is an academic but everything that their academic friend explains about the job market just makes zero sense to them um Can you kind of unpack a bit why it is that our 
careers require us to do this kind of hunting. You probably got a lot of suggestions from well-meaning loved ones. There's there's yeah. a college not far from here, and then we could yeah. see you more often. And couldn't you work in this other town? And why won't the school that you went to hire you? Do yeah. you want to kind of take to, you know take a minute and talk about some of those very well-meaning uh, feelings people who care about us have, and why the market kind of is the way that it is? Yeah. Um, so. I'm trying to think in which order to put things. Um, so in the last part of the 20th century, um, universities in various ways realised um, that they could get away with not having quite so many permanent staff. Um, and so they started bringing things in and kind of saying, okay, we can do bigger classes, uh, we can do, we can have more TAs, we can have more adjuncts. Um, and so the number of jobs um, kind of declined very substantially. Stereotypically, it is the humanities that this happened to. Um, but it's not, I mean, I know people with chemistry PhDs who either couldn't get an academic job or really struggled to get into one. Um, so there was this general kind of whilst we're still, whilst huge number of people, increasing number of people were going to universities and getting undergrad degrees, and so those classes need to be kept, and whilst we're keeping uh, still a lot of people going through grad school and we're producing potential professors, um, the number of jobs is contracting. And so then you have this buyer's market, essentially, where any job you list is going to get 200 applicants, probably more. Um, and so it becomes outrageously competitive and it becomes um, very difficult to get any job when, you know, an entry-level position, you have people with a book out applying for an adjunct job for the year, you know? Uh, so it becomes incredibly hard to get any position anywhere, let alone to pick and choose and say, you know, I'll only take jobs in the south of England. And the more specialized your area, uh, the, the more complicated it is to find a job teaching exactly what it is that you do. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it as specialized because we all are specialized, but I think it's more about the popularity of the field in terms of um, students taking it and the money put into it. So I work partly in Slavic studies and partly in history of science. And that's interesting because history of science is currently very cool, is pretty well funded. And some people in the field have a, this feeling of being bulletproof, like, oh, we do this trendy, sexy thing, and it's so important, and, you know, we're just going to be around forever. Except in the 80s and 90s, this is also what Slavic studies was like. Slavic studies was the thing. Russian studies was the thing when the Soviet Union was a big concern for the West. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And Slavic studies funding collapsed along with it. And so you went from a situation where most substantial sized universities in the US would have three historians of Russia, 
to down to often just one historian of Russia. Um, and so I was coming into these um, universities, coming into to grad school, being taught by people who remembered what it was like to be the cool field um, and knew then what it was like to have be kind of post-cool. Um, and in this period where it was like, well, I don't know that we really need these people doing this subject anymore. Um, and so if you're applying for history of science jobs, probably if you could do some kind of search of the number of things, you will see a lot of history of science, history of medicine, postdocs, and uh, university positions. The number of Russian history positions, especially um, especially the earlier things, so like you'll still see a lot of post-Soviet, a certain amount of Soviet posts coming up, but kind of longer-term Russian history just the numbers of those jobs just collapsed um, in the across the 90s and certainly at this position. Um, so that's a major factor um, in what kind of position you can get into is where do you fit in in certain fields and how well is your field currently funded. You mentioned earlier that when you lived in Europe, you made several trips back and forth to archives. And uh, it strikes me that maybe several of your most important archives for your field are in Russia. Is there concern among scholars about how you'll continue to access primary sources? Oh, yeah. Huge, huge issues. Um, so it's kind of been a problem for a while now. Officially, you need a, how would we translate this? scientific technical visa, basically, in order to, if you want to be an affiliated scholar at a Russian university, if you want to use archives and libraries, you are supposed to have this very specific kind of visa, and you have to get affiliation with a Russian university to do that. Not all Russian institutions are set up to do that, so that's one thing. So that then limits you to kind of a handful of major universities. You put on top of that, certainly since 2014, since the invasion of Crimea, we are all foreign agents and there's kind of increasing pressure on, on Russian institutions um, that deal with foreigners in various ways to kind of say, well, I don't, we don't really want these people around. So you're asking your colleagues to attract the attention of the Russian state to get you a visa. So it's already been the case for several years now where it's been a bit dodgy to come in um, to Russia. You are putting a lot on your friends and colleagues to get yourself in the country. Um, in theory, you could come in on a tourist or a business visa and just go to the archive anyway. Um, but people have been then uh, sort of turned into the authorities if people know that they're not on the right visa and immigration shows up to the reading room and like takes people out um, and detains them and they get banned from the country or they get fined and things like this. So even before the current invasion of Ukraine, it was a bit sketchy. Um, getting into Russia and working, doing any kind of academic things. There are right now some Westerners in Russia, um, although 
a lot of people have left. So there's a, a foreign journalist who I think she had been in Moscow for 44 years. So she was there for a lot of things going down. She left earlier this year. So this is the kind of level of non-Russians getting out of the country. And for that matter, a lot of Russians have um, have left as well and gone to places like Central Asia and the Caucasus where they don't need a visa and they're just kind of leaving. Right now, I would not go to Russia. It is absolutely impossible and irresponsible to go to Ukraine right now. And I would never sign off on a grad student going to either of those places uh, right now either. And I wouldn't advise anyone to be there. In fact, the opposite, I would say it is, it is, it would be hugely irresponsible to go to Ukraine for anything either other than um, legitimate humanitarian aid for which you are qualified um, and for which you are genuinely needed. Um, and it is simply incredibly dangerous to go to Russia right now. So my current answer is absolutely no work in the country. It is probably illegal for me to pay a Russian archive to make copies for me. I mean, there are economic sanctions right now. Um, And so, and then there are some things on websites, but, you know, um, when the Ukrainian universities were bombed, a lot of Ukrainian, uh, so for example, academic library websites that had scans of of pre-modern books up, those websites don't exist right now. Like, I don't know if the servers were bombed or something, but just huge numbers of Ukrainian websites went down, so you can't use any of that. Um, So you're increasingly restricted to printed sources. There's a certain amount up from Russian, on Russian academic websites, but I can certainly see a situation in which the, we are banned from the Russian websites as well anytime soon. So it's really a an increasingly restricted world um, and one in which you do have to prioritize being a good person over getting done what you would otherwise like to let get done. You said when you were an uh, undergrad, your professor's um, were of a generation where they recalled the the Soviet Union and the fall of it. Had they warned you when you went into this field that that access to what you need may be shut off in the future? Did they have a sort of worry oh, sorry, about? I think I lost you for a second. How uh, secure the field would be and access to data would be for you? Okay, um, I lost you very briefly there. Um, but your question was. Um, were we warned that we could have be cut off from our sources, right? At some point, by the by, the scholars who originally trained you, given that, that they had long experience with with observing the region and and the, the political changes, had they said, you know, don't get comfortable uh, that you'll be able to keep going in and doing research? Yeah, absolutely. This was this was very well known. So, I mean, I I had professors who corresponded with academics who were in the gulag and there were a couple of different people around who were dissidents from eastern europe and you know fled hungary um during the crackdowns in the 50s um and a famous professor of romanian studies who was declared persona non grata by the ceausescu regime 
So there were people who had kind of fled the Soviet bloc and there were a number of academics around who were just banned from their country of, of study. So it was, we always knew, we knew from undergrads that this absolutely, this absolutely had happened and that this could happen again. It- Mentioned that when you were in Kazakhstan, you were beginning to look around for jobs, but it wasn't quite as uh, frenetic, for lack of a better word, as it had been at other times when you had been job hunting because you did have the contract. So it gave you a bit of time to be looking and you found the job in Indiana and you've now moved and you're officially as of this week in your office there in Indiana. Can you talk to us about the logistics of international interviewing and the logistics of international moves for these jobs? Uh, Yeah, that is is pretty huge. Um, So a lot of universities still want to do in-person campus visits. It was actually illegal for me to do an in-person visit at Indiana because at the time, I was only vaccinated with Sputnik. Sputnik is not recognized by the WHO and so not recognized by the US government. And you are not allowed, if you are a non-US citizen, you are not allowed in the country unless you are vaccinated with the WHO approved uh, vaccine. So I just, I could not come and do a campus visit. It was illegal for me to do that. Um, So we then did everything on Zoom. I actually think that was better in the end because it would have been, I mean, it's something like three flights and 20 plus hours of travel to get to do one way Kazakhstan to Indiana. So I think doing it on Zoom was ultimately the better choice. Um, But my interview experience was determined by vaccine politics, basically. You did the interview and you got the offer. Take us through what it what it's like to to do the the actual move. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty huge. Um, so if you followed the Central Asian news at, at all, um, you would know in January um, there were big protests and then a very scary government crackdown, including the Russian army um, coming in, and you know there were tanks on the street and. Um, various people I know heard gunfire outside of their apartments. Um, So that was a a scary start to the year. Um, And then the invasion of Ukraine happens. The invasion of Ukraine actually started the day of the the day my interview started. Um, And Kazakhstan in various ways is kind of bound up with this. um, And the Russian propaganda machine has kind of increasingly threatened Kazakhstan. And so this then actually affected the timeline of when I wanted to get to Indiana. So on in under other circumstances, you would stay where you are, wait for the, the visa and come in, you know, I probably would have come into Indiana late July. But I had to say to the university, like, there are actual security concerns here. There are like, if something were to happen in Kazakhstan, I can't leave the country quickly, or if I were to leave the country quickly, I would have to leave behind a lot of things um, because of this situation. So um, as a British person, I can come into the US for three months um, as long as I'm not working under a visa waiver thing. And so I was actually here this summer 
um, officially still working for my Kazakhstan employer, um, but being here in Indiana in order to um, do this very complicated move and make sure everything was lined up um, at a time when things weren't too bad in order to make sure that we could actually get out and get into the US. Um, And so I've been here over the summer and kind of then sorting things out here. So the actual move itself, um, I didn't, I needed the right vaccination status. Um, And for various complicated reasons, um, I ended up flying back and forth to Uzbekistan um, to get the vaccination shots I needed. So that's already, you know, um, four flights internationally to just get the legal status, my health legal status set up. Um, then next in the scheme of things was to find a shipping company. Happily, I had some recommendations, um, but you have to speak to them and get a quote. And then they come into your house and your office and they pack everything. Um, so that's kind of a thing you have to kind of arrange. And it's going to be this very, very substantial expense. I mean, if you're removing anywhere internationally, and you have any level of possessions that require a shipping company, you're talking certainly $5,000, easily more. Um, And then I had to book flights. And so you have to, so three flights, you have to, in order to get Kazakhstan to Indiana, certainly three flights. So then you have multiple options of how you're getting there like which which version do we need I was coming with my beloved cat so then I need pet reservations and how do you reserve pets and like the different pet rules on the different airlines um and then I actually needed her paperwork um everyone's very concerned about rabies so you have to have special government paperwork to be allowed to take your pet to another country and that just the pet paperwork alone was a couple of hours, maybe three hours over over two days um, just before I flew out because it has to be a recent health status. Um, and then you have to book hotels and then I had to book summer accommodation. Um, so that is what you have to do just to get in the country. So that is... Organizing with IU to come in early, unpaid, and just to be affiliated here. Um, Vaccinations for me, shipping company, flights for me and the cat, health things for me and the cat, accommodation. um, All has to be lined up before I go anywhere. And then there's the piece that you've moved to a place you've never lived before and most likely don't actually know anybody nearby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of happened more and more in my career. So I knew people in London. I knew people in Cambridge. Cambridge and London, not very far from each other. Nothing in the UK is very far from anything. Um, I moved to when I was in Germany, I was in Berlin, I happened to know a number of different people in Berlin from various things before. And again, it's not that far from England. Kazakhstan, I had one friend there that I'd known for several years, um, who then actually moved away um, very shortly after I got there, unrelated reasons, he wasn't fleeing me. 
Um, and actually the sister of a friend from Berlin worked there. So I knew a couple of people before I showed up. Um, but then everyone else is new. And again, like you don't know anyone in the country. You don't know anyone in the time zone. Um, it's a huge, huge um, change. And then Indiana, I didn't know anyone in the entire state. I had never been in the state before. Um, and so it's, for me, kind of been progressively um, going to places where I know fewer and fewer people before I get there. Well, so let's jump in and talk about Zaria and um, moving with a pet and you talked about the logistics of going on an airplane with the pet and all of the health checks. Were there any quarantines that Zaria had to go through? Happily, no. So it's it's now relatively unusual to um, that animals get put in a full quarantine. Um, so in the eighties, my parents. So my parents are British. They'd gone to Australia for several years, um, and they came back and brought their dog with them. And at that point, the dog actually did have to go into fairly long-term quarantine to make sure he wasn't bringing any illnesses into the country. The standard now is that they won't let you get on the plane unless you have uh, the right health information. So interestingly, the, the US health regulation is slightly more relaxed than Europe. Kazakhstan is considered a high rabies incident country. Um, so everywhere requires that you have proof of um, of rabies vaccination status, including like an official government form that is, yeah, like a, a very official stamped, officially created form of where you're going and um, the pet's detail and her microchip number and all of this kind of thing. If I were taking her directly from Kazakhstan to Europe, um, she also would have had basically have to have um, an antibody test to show that she has acceptable level levels of um, rabies antibodies in her blood. Um, so uh, we're talking about a seven pound house cat <laughs> and she has to have, you know, almost her weight in official documentation to go anywhere internationally. And this was one of my major stresses especially of like the possibility of having to leave in a hurry you can't get this paperwork in a hurry you can't get pet reservations on airlines in a hurry um it's not something they guarantee they can do um so moving internationally with pets occasionally is just impossible sometimes you simply cannot take your animals to or from um certain places um, certainly, this was true a lot in the pandemic. The airlines just weren't accepting pet reservations. Um, but when you can do it, it is very substantial, very finicky paperwork, and the pet and the airline could still um, not allow you on the plane at the last minute. So this was like a this was kind of a down to the wire, down to kind of standing at the check-in desk saying, "Please let this actually work out." kind of a situation. And it's a substantial expense for people who've sort of dipped a toe into looking at what would it cost if I moved to Australia, for example, from the States and I took my dog. It's more than bringing, you know, your significant other 
who's a human along for the trip. Yeah. So I was, my cat is small enough that she was, she was hand luggage. Um, so I just had the expense of the official documentation and the pet reservations. And I guess all of that was probably $300 or something. Whereas I looked into shipping her. So if you have, so you can ship any pet. Um, if you have pets over certain dimensions and certainly most dogs would have to be shipped in the hold and you have to pay a company to do that for you. I was quoted $3,000 to ship her. It's, these are agonizing decisions too, because these companies who do this professionally, you have a degree of confidence. Like if the airline says, no, I'm not taking your cat, or I reach a place where I've changed to airplane number two, and I think we're finally doing fine. And that airport in that country says, oh no, you're missing form number 312. So I'm sorry, you can go forward, but the cat can't. Um, sometimes people feel like, well, I know it's $3,000 to pay this professional company to move my pet, but it's basically guaranteed my pet is going to get there absolutely fine. And these number of hoops and bureaucracies I have to jump through, not just once, but every time I cross country lines or state lines, what if I screw up and the pet doesn't make it all the way to the end with me? Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, I would not have left Kazakhstan without her. Like we have one of those like weirdly codependent um, human pet relationships. Like we are each other's favorite people. So this had to work. Um, and I mean, what I would, I would pay the company the money as, and But I would still want her with me in the cabin. And what mostly those companies want to do is for you to pay them um, to, sh to do the shipping of the animal. And then they go in the hold um, and um, the, the kind of the company is responsible for them throughout the journey. Whereas I just want someone to, like you say, check the paper, check the fucking paperwork and make sure this says what it's supposed to say. But I want her in the cabin because we're both happier um, being in the cabin together and you know she just sat at my feet and stared at the airline stewardesses um, and you know it was all okay because we were together but yeah like you say the, this easily could fall apart at any any point in the international journey there are people in the states who you know they're relocating from the farthermost east coast to the farthermost west coast which can be it's a 3000 mile journey and they would rather drive because they know the pet will be continuously with them even if they have to rent a car or borrow one from a relative or purchase it for the journey and sell it when they get there because they can't afford to have a car um they will do what it takes to make sure they and the pet are not separated for the relocating for work and for some listeners, this will not make sense to them, but I think a staggering number, it will make sense to, particularly having gone through the pandemic. Pets were an enormous lifeline for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about what it's like to be an animal on an aircraft, if you can drive or if you can take a train, if you're in Europe, it is much better. Um, you can't explain to the animals where they're going or why they're going there. On the airplanes and to a certain extent the airport itself as well is very, very loud, um, especially for sensitive little pet ears. Um, 
cats are in carriers, but they have to come out of the carrier at security and you have to kind of hold them. And so they're in this big new place and there's all these people around. Um, They mostly won't want to drink water even during the journey. And so you have to make sure that they are not traveling for too long. It is very stressful. It's very stressful for animals to travel any substantial difference distance, but to do it on an airplane is particularly um, tricky. So when you're doing an international move, the, the triage that you've described, it's really about choosing the highest emotional priorities. And for you, it's not furniture, it's potentially not even clothing, it's key books that you need because of the state of your field. It's your pet. It's a few emotionally important heirlooms and the rest of it doesn't matter. You have to really be focused on these are the key irreplaceable non-negotiables. They go with me and I and I have to budget for the cost of that and the rest of it just doesn't go with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because Unless you are from a very rich family or have been exceptionally well paid, you will have to make this trade-off at some point. And the other trade-off is time versus money. Because, I mean, if I totted up all of the time it cost me to organize this, and I mean, I just spent the whole weekend constructing um, reasonably priced furniture, um, it is outrageously outrageous amounts of time to organize all of this um and so that's just not possible for various people because of disabilities or because of childcare or because of all numbers of other things and so if you pay more money usually you do fewer things yourself and so how much can I afford to spend in terms of money? How much can I afford to spend in terms of time? What am I going to have to give up? How do I compromise these various different things? Because you will have to compromise somewhere, and it might be quite a painful compromise. And as you said, it's not not something everyone can do, either because of safety issues or because of cost issues or because of health issues or a host of other things including family dependents. As far as the finances, to the amount that you're comfortable sharing, is it customary for the university to do a reimbursement situation? Is it that you have to have the money saved up to finance this move? Mm. Actually, I remember now I've forgotten one part of the the organization, which was, because we were just talking about disability, I have daily medications. And then that's a whole other level of things. So you have to look up are my medications available where I'm going? Um, do I have to legally declare them at customs? You know, are they on, for example, um, um, the DEA restricted list? Um, at which point you're then going to have potentially more paperwork uh, to go along with that. And you may well need to pre-purchase a certain amount of medications to take with you for your initial arrival. So anyone with any kind of medical issue like that that's then a whole other um, thing that you need to do there. And I've now forgotten the question you just asked me. <laughs> it was to the extent that you're comfortable about how people budget and, and ask about reimbursement oh, for yes. their yeah, living yeah. expenses. This is huge. Um, it 
very substantially differs depending on the kind of job you're doing. And in the eternal unfairness of academia, um, the better you're being paid, the more you're going to get reimbursed. So if you are moving from an ad- for an adjunct job, um, sorry, you're probably not going to get anything at all. Um, and for um, state universities, often cannot legally give you a separate pot of money for this, although they may be able to support you in other ways. So for a number of different jobs, especially for earlier career jobs, the amount of reimbursement you'll get is zero. And then it can pretty wildly vary from there. Some places will be able to give you flights. Um, You're having thunderstorms there in Indiana, and they are affecting our sound feed a little bit. So I'm going to ask you some of my final questions before we lose you due to weather. Um, Could you give us some of the coping skills, um, some tips for that that you've learned based on your you know, extensive field testing of what helps you get through these um, complicated moves for your career? Um, Sure. So as I said before, have like a capsule of things that are really important to you and that you love, like your one favorite book, um, your one favorite ornament, and make sure you have those with you. Find some way of connecting with your friends back home, like maybe we'll text each other once a week um, and kind of develop things like that. Um, And try and find some way of connecting with local community that isn't people you work with. So, you know, look up Facebook groups of religious organizations or sports club or knitting circles or whatever it is you do and try and make local connections. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I think it's important to be honest with people, especially people who are just coming in as very early career scholars. Um, and they need to they need to really know the details of what they are signing up for. Um, and so they need they can then make an informed choice about what are they willing to give up for what they want to get? Um, is moving internationally something that they are that they want to do, that they are prepared to do, given the kind of thing you're going to have to do to make it work? Um, but also, I know a number of people who have done international moves looked at the blog posts that kind of inspired this podcast and said, yes, this is what it's like. Um, and so it's important for us to kind of feel seen and to say, well, this is the experience of internationally moving scholars. Um, and this is this is our experience of this world. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Clara Griffin, and talking to us about the hidden curriculum of international moves as an academic. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please... Join us again.